0: So we are continuing through the book of Luke. We're going to be looking this morning at a passage that has very much to do with the evangelistic effort. Jesus has come to declare himself to be the very Son of God. He has come to present himself to Israel as their Messiah. He has fulfilled everything that they could possibly want from the Old Testament to display himself as their Messiah. Now, they think the only thing that matters is that he present himself as a political Messiah, that he overthrow the Romans, that he set up some kind of government, that he he put out a visible throne and make sure that he sits on it and others rule and reign with him. In their mind, that was all there was to being the Messiah. It never quite occurs to them that God doesn't just want your politics. God wants your heart. God wants to transform not just some outward political institution. God wants to transform the inward person. In fact, to simply transform the outward political structure and system is not really going to work if you don't have an inward transformation first. And so Jesus goes forward and preaches and teaches and carries out this ministry. Now, he leaves this to us as well. This is what we are called to do, right? Go into all the world and declare the gospel. And you might feel like well, I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to live the gospel. I'm trying to live as a Christian. I'm trying to put the gospel into my life and to live like I believe it and to share it with those who I think might have some openness to hearing it. And you might feel like, but I'm not sure just how successful this is. I'm not sure we're really winning, as it were. And you might think that winning looks like, well, I don't know, we should be watching all kinds of folks repenting, and and there should just be this continuous marching army, victorious into more in the world, more and more folks repenting and turning. And well, well, that would be great, of course, and I wouldn't want to see that. But we come now to the life and ministry of Jesus, and you have to realistically look at the situation How's it going? Jesus is obviously the absolute perfect evangelist, just like he's perfect at everything else. How's it going? How is this actually working? And we look at this passage, and there will be more, by the way, as the gospel continues to progress, in which we can see how this actually works. And by the way, Jesus is not failing. Jesus completely succeeds in the plan, as will the apostles. So you'll recall last week, a little bit of summary here. He ends, they come to him, they say, Herod wants to kill you. And he's like, I don't, don't be trying to threaten me with Herod. That's not going to get you anywhere. I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. I, I'm just going to do what I need to get done here. Because it cannot be that a prophet perishes outside of Jerusalem. A bit of a dark proverb, as it were. Uh, I'm going to die when it's appropriate and at the right place. Jesus will have already said, by the way, back in Luke chapter 11, we went over this passage. He's already said to them, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are our witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, And you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. Matthew, just a little bit after this present account in Luke, Jesus will go to the temple, and in the temple complex, he will say to the religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and I say, and say, why, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have partnered with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You might ask, well, how can one generation be guilty for the sins of the previous generations? And the answer is, you should have paid attention to the sins of the previous generations. The reason you're accountable for the blood of all the previous generations is because you have a greater person in the person of Jesus than any of the Old Testament prophets. You claim, why, if we had been alive at the time of the prophets, I'm here to tell you right now, we would not be killing any prophets of God, not us. So you say. And yet... You think you've learned the lesson of your fathers. You think why we wouldn't be like them. Okay. Okay. So God sent you his own son. And what do you do with him? You hate him. You loathe him. You reject him. So what you're doing is making it very plain to anyone who is watching and actually paying attention What Jesus said, you testify against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. You claim that the standard is we would never, like our fathers, persecute or kill a prophet of God. That's the standard you set. Well, it's the standard you're going to be held to. And guess what? You fail miserably at this standard. Because you don't just have a prophet. You have the prophet of God. God himself in the flesh has come. And what has he done? Nothing but good. Nothing but kindness. And yet there is no self-reflection. There is no self-awareness. They never actually stop and say, I wonder if my forefathers who persecuted the prophets, I I wonder if they actually thought that maybe they were doing the work of God. I, I wonder if maybe they were just mistaken. And I wonder if maybe I'm mistaken yeah no no there seems to be no no ability to do that they don't seem to ever stop for even a moment and question themselves instead what they just assume is that while we are the people of God and we we obviously represent God and the thinking of God and so whatever we think is what God thinks and what we think is that Jesus can't possibly be of God because well after all he condemned us why we know we're of God so we're going to persecute him Hmm. Okay, so what is Jesus' response? He speaks truth to them. He speaks to them. He tries to get them to see, don't you guys understand? You're just like your fathers. Jesus has compassion on them. Jesus tries to convince them. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Jesus tries to reason with them. Jesus tries to present the truth to them. We have to remember, no matter where you may fall on the discussion of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, wherever you land on that, and there's all kinds of positions you can can land on, you may land on the side that says, I believe totally in the sovereignty of God. Okay, that's good. I think God is sovereign, by the way. But the fact is, You don't get saved until you get saved. The fact is there is human agency. You don't just perceive that you chose God. You actually do choose God. The gospel is the moment in which you wake up to the reality that I am a sinner. And what have I been doing trying to get God to accept my good works? How crazy was that? And of course, God shouldn't accept my good works. And you repent. That's because you repent. Now, you may discover as you study the scripture that sure enough, God actually chose you before the foundation of the world and that God has been working in your life and actually God brought you to this place. And, but the fact is when it's all done, you had to know the truth, hear the truth, and believe the truth. And as we look here at Jesus' interaction with these religious leaders, even though he knows how this is going to go, Jesus knows exactly how this is all going to end. It's going to end with them crucifying him. It's going to end with them totally rejecting him. But that's not the heart of Jesus. Not to borrow too many sermons from the future. We'll have a great time when we get to this, but... It's so essential. Luke 19, when Jesus actually arrives at Jerusalem, verse 41, he approaches Jerusalem, he sees the city, he weeps over it, saying, if you had known in this day even you the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when you, when, upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Jesus weeps as he says this. Remember Luke 20, which we'll get to that again. Another sermon from the future, but it's a a well-known story. The guy who plants the vineyard. And he rents it out to vine growers. Now that he's got this beautiful piece of land with the beautiful vines in it, he, send, he lends it out to some vine growers. And, of course, the time of harvest comes, and he sends some of his servants to gather up the harvest. Well, I want to give it to him. And they beat some of his servants, and some of them they even kill, until he's, he says, well, I, I know what I'll do. I'll send my own son. surely they'll have respect for my son. And, of course, we know that we're familiar with it. What do they do? Well, they... Kill his son. And Jesus will say to them, what do you suppose the owner of that vineyard should do to these vine growers? And the only answer is, well, he should, of course, cast them out. Yeah. Now, Jesus is speaking this to the very people who are going to kill him. And you have to realize that Jesus could take a whole different approach, you know. Jesus could actually take the approach of calling down fire. Remember, the two sons of thunder are like, well, should we call down lightning on them? You guys, you don't understand the spirit with which you're operating here. No, we're not going to call down fire on people. That's, that's not what we're doing. We, we continue to try to present the truth to them with compassion. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. Jesus is trying to help them to see that all you need to do is repent. Turn from your self-righteousness and try to rely on the righteousness of God. How does he go about doing this? Well, he goes in and he heals all of their diseases. He shows his power over the demons. He walks on water and feeds the 5,000 and the 7,000. He speaks Loving words of truth and compassion, the meek will inherit the earth. Love your enemies, do good to those that hate you. He does nothing but speak kindness and compassion. He could have set out to persuade them by other means. He could have simply demanded that they fall down and worship him. And he could have made them do it. He doesn't. That is not how He operates. It's kindness, it's graciousness, forgiveness, goodness. These are the things that Jesus uses in an attempt to persuade those who hate him. This is very instructive for us. This is the group of people, by the way, that Jesus knows for the most part this is not going to work. He does it anyway. He does it anyway. They are going to know that a prophet of God has been among them. They are going to, at the day of judgment, they're going to be held accountable that they saw the love of God. They saw the compassion of God. They saw it. They saw it in the person of Jesus. And they will crucify him, by the way, knowing he's innocent. They'll, they'll admit he's innocent. And so Jesus comes to them to show them God's compassion and grace and love and forgiveness. And so when they threaten him, you know, they're like, Herod's going to kill you. Jesus is not going to be cast off the brow of the hill by the people of his town. He's not going to go into the wilderness for 40 days and be torn apart by wild beasts. He's not going to drown in the Sea of Galilee because there's a big storm that his disciples are all worried about. He'll walk on water if he needs to. He's certainly not going to be killed by thieves or some kind of, people who mob him. He's not going to be killed by Herod or any of his people. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to his own people. He's going to go to those who should have loved him, who should have worshipped him, who should have embraced him. And so we come to this passage this morning in verse 34 of Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is a, this is a, a, to speak this is with great emotion. This is, this is like when David's son Absalom, remember his son is killed and, and David is like, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I died instead of you. This is, this is great emotion. Jesus will say this to Martha, you know, Martha, Martha, this is like, really pay attention here trying to, to convey a strong sense of feeling. And Jesus has strong feelings. This is God in the flesh. God is not, God is not some automaton here. God is not some brilliant, white, glowing light that's unapproachable and not even human that, that is so other that he has no emotions at all. Oh, God has emotions? why we have emotions. We're made in the image of God, remember? God feels. Jesus feels. That's why Jesus says of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of David, the, the city of, of my nation. This is the place you're supposed to be a light to the whole world. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to be the place where the temple is. This is the spot where God interacts with man. This is where the Holy of Holies was. This is most likely, by the way, the place of Jacob's ladder. This is most likely the mount in which Abraham offered up Isaac. This is very likely the exact same piece of real estate. Right there, Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. Oh, Jerusalem. This is the place where God has chosen to interact with man. Instead of being that place, instead of being the place of the grace of God, the meeting of God and men, the mediator, instead, you're the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, which... You look in the Old Testament, and there's a a variety of passages, 2 Chronicles 24, after the death of Jedaniah, uh, the Spirit of God comes upon Zechariah, the son of Jedaniah, the priest. Jedaniah kind of kept him in line, and then Zechariah, his son, he stands above the people and says to them, thus God has said, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and, and do not? That's why you don't prosper. You've forsaken the Lord, so he's forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stunned him to death in the court of the Lord. Right there in the temple complex. There are others. We won't go through the list. There's a a number of times in which this is the place where you're supposed to meet God, and and the prophets come there, and the priests are there, and they try to speak to the people. And some of them they stone, and some of them they kill these are the people of God and you go back to Abraham the call of Abraham I took him a while to get his act together it took Isaac a while for him to get his act together and Jacob quite a while to get his act together and the nation itself I'm, finally Moses leads them out of Egypt you would think with all of those miracles that this would be the most godly generation ever they're the least godly generation ever Joshua does finally get him into the promised land and while he's alive, they do okay. But towards the end of his life, he says to them, you know, fail as God serve him. But if the Lord be God, serve him as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's how bad the nation was while Joshua was still alive. He had to remind them of that. And of course, the book of Judges is, you know, they, they, they have prosperity. They're serving God. Things are going great. And then it goes really well and they forget God and they worship idols and they fall into slavery and they're, they're taken over by other nations and then they repent and God sends a deliverer and they prosper for a while until they're too prosperous and they forget. I mean, in that cycle, this goes on and it's, it's just distressing to read. It's hard to watch. Uh, and you look at it and go, hmm, that sounds really familiar. That's almost, it's almost like looking in a mirror, right? Um, and then they end up with, okay, well, the judges aren't working, we need a king. Okay, how did Saul go? Not so well. How did David go? Better, but even David had the whole Bathsheba and Uriah situation there. Solomon, he finally brings the nation into a place where they they actually take their place among the nations of the earth. I mean, they're influential. Solomon is, he's quite the king, except by the end, he's committing adultery and, sorry, idolatry with the foreign wives that he has. Solomon isn't doing so well either. And then, of course, the kingdom divides. And we, it's, And then Jesus shows up. And he looks at this group of people and he says to them, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he goes on and he says, How often I wanted to gather your children together. How, well, how often did Jesus want to gather the children of Israel together? Not just as God, but actually as literally Jesus, the guy in the flesh, the guy who has come into this world. Well, In the Old Testament, there were three feasts that occurred annually. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was, we know, as the Passover. There was the Feast of Harvest, which you know as Pentecost. And then there was the Feast of Ingathering, which was the Feast of Booths. Those three occasions, all the men of Israel were to make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate those. Every year. Three times a year. Jesus, who we know kept the law perfectly. He would have gone to Jerusalem at least three times a year his entire life. Because that's what the Old Testament called for. We know that as a child, he has been interacting with the leaders of the nation. Just picture. Now we know that when he finally got baptized and he started his public ministry, John baptized him. The first time he actually shows up in Jerusalem as the baptized Messiah, what does he do? He makes a whip out of a out of, out of little thong and he drives the money changers out of there along with all of those who are buying and selling and says to them, will you get out of my father's house? You've turned my father's house, which should be a house of prayer into a den of thieves. The zeal of the Lord has consumed me. Okay, Jesus has been watching that go on his entire life as, as a child. Every year he's come to Jerusalem, three times a year, at least, if not more. And every time you can imagine that this has just been, Jesus knows how this is supposed to go. And instead of people coming and loving God and worshiping God and feeling great about it, they're coming and getting ripped off. The money they give, oh, that's no good. You can't use that money. You've got to use temple money. That lamb you brought, that lamb's not good. You need to go buy a, a kosher lamb. So you go to buy the kosher lamb, and and, oh, you can't use your money, you got to go get temple money. So not only are you paying an an outrageous price for this lamb, but now you you have to pay the outrageous price with temple money, which we've ripped you off there too. And so by the time you finally give your sacrifice, you're cursing the sacrifice of God. Jesus has watched this his whole life. Oh, how often he would have gathered these people together. He so wanted to gather them, to to bring them together and to hold them and to just comfort them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're being exploited. The very system which is supposed to draw them to God and to make them feel forgiven by God is being exploited by those in charge to make them hate the sacrifice of God. They have taken God's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, and they've turned it into a den of thieves. And they're stealing from the very people of God. It's it's abominable. No wonder. The first chance he gets as the baptized Messiah, he drives them out. Oh, how he wished to gather them together. How often I would have gathered you just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You ever seen this? You know, even even barnyard chickens, even just, you know, your average, you know, people who own chickens. Uh, If a mother hen has a brood of chicks, hatches, you know, seven or eight of them there, you know, and out they come, and she's walking around the barnyard, and, you know, she got those little chicks all running after her, you know, they will form that little line. If a hawk should fly over, and the shadow should fall, the mother hen will puff up, and she'll puff out her wings, and she'll make herself look as big as she possibly can, and all those little chicks, they'll run right under her wings. They'll all hide, under mom. It's a pretty interesting thing to see. She's protecting them. Jesus is like, oh, how I would have just gathered you. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. Have wanted to be there. To watch over you. To show you compassion and love. And you would not have it. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. Jesus comes and shows them nothing but grace and kindness. Heals their illnesses. Preaches truth. Tries to call them to the love of God. And they would not. It's not just the leaders. The people too. They decided that Jesus operated by the power of the devil as well. And when it came time for Jesus to be crucified, it wasn't just the leaders yelling crucify him. It was the whole crowd. He's not the Messiah they're looking for. Get rid of him. Away with one. So, in his role as prophet, Jesus speaks to them. And he says this in verse 35. Behold, that is, pay attention. Listen up. Behold. I mean, I want you to really look and think about what I'm about to say. Your house is left to you. Now your translation may have the word desolate there. Hopefully, if it does have it, it's in italics because that word doesn't actually appear here in the Greek. Now it does appear in Matthew. Matthew is going to f- you know, he's going to finish that sentence for them. Luke just leaves it blank. He's writing to a different audience. Your house is left to you. Basically. You want me to go away and leave you alone? Okay. You're on your own. If this is how you want it, you don't want God anymore? You don't want God to gather you under his wings? You don't want the protection of God? You don't want the love of God? You don't want the compassion of God? You don't want to admit that you need God? You don't want, to, you don't want any of that? You do want to repent of your self-righteousness and trust in the grace of God? You don't want really to do that? Okay. Okay. Your house is left to you. It's yours. It's your house. You have it. God is walking away. In fact, he says, I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes that you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is left to you. It it will be destroyed, which, by the way, is why Matthew uses, he adds the word destruction. Destruction. Jesus did say, Destruct, but Luke leaves it out because he wants, he's got a different emphasis here. Matthew will make it clear that your house is left to you desolate. Your house will be destroyed. And of course, we know that it will be destroyed. And not very far in the future, about 40 years after this event, after Jesus says these words, sure enough, the Jews will decide that they've had it with the Romans and they will rebel the zealots will just go out and start murdering Roman officials, and Rome will send their general Titus, and he will come down, and he will besiege Jerusalem. The people in the city of Jerusalem will break out into basic civil war. You should go online. The writings of Josephus are available online now. It's not like you need to, you know, find some library somewhere in dusty basement and you know wipe off the dust and open up the writings of Josephus or pay a bunch of money for them. they're all online just go right online you can find the account of Josephus of the siege of Jerusalem it's a disaster they first off some guy immediately lights all of the grain in Jerusalem on fire all of the storage that they have for whatever reason I, I can't recall now exactly what it was he said but that that that's like As soon as the Romans surround them, the guy lights all the grain on fire. So, well, that's nice, you know. He was Jewish, and they're shooting at each other. The Romans are just kind of sitting back watching this. There's the temple complex, you know. they got got people shooting at one another down here. They they have bows and arrows, you know, and they're they're lobbing stuff at each other. And the, the Romans are just standing back and watching this as they just, it disintegrates. Why? God has taken his hand off them you want your house left to you? Okay. And of course, what happens? Well, the Romans do eventually make it through. They let them get done what they're doing, and then the Romans will break into Jerusalem, and they will go up on the Temple Mount, and they will wipe it clean. Just like Jesus said to the disciples, you recall, on the Mount of Olives, after he's got done blasting the religious leaders, and they they make their way down the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives, the disciples will say to him, but look at the beautiful buildings. I mean, And Jesus is like, guys, not one stone will be left on top of another. Don't be counting on the buildings. That's not really what matters. Plus, they'll all be destroyed. And of course, the Romans were, apparently there was a rumor that the Jews had buried a bunch of gold under the temple. Remember, this is Herod's temple. It was 40 years in the making. This was a magnificent building see if we can find the gold. So, you know, the Roman soldiers, I mean, they literally just, you can go down and you can see the Temple Mount now. And if you don't, you know, actually go, you can get pictures. It's, you know, it's Google Earth for that matter. Just Google the Temple Mount. You know, it's flat. It's gone. There's not one stone left of Herod's Temple, let alone Solomon's. Solomon's long gone. Nebuchadnezzar took care of that. It's, it's just not a stone there. Just like Jesus said. Why? you rejected your Messiah, your house is left to you. By the way, it'll end up desolate. And I'm not, I'm not coming back. I mean, not in the, in the sense in which you think. Now he will show up at Jerusalem and they will crucify him. I mean, that event is going to come to pass, but he looks at them and says, you are not really going to see me as your Messiah. You're not going to see me who I am until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which One can only wonder what the Pharisees must have thought of that, since they, of course, think they speak for God. But I suspect, like everything else, Jesus says to them, it just goes right over their head. We are called to preach the gospel. We are called to share the truth of Christ. We are called to preach it to a lost and dying world who, frankly, doesn't want to hear it. We're still called to preach it. And this example of Christ to us here even Ahaz, he, he prays, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you. How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And yet still Jesus continues to speak to them, to seek to persuade them, and to give them the truth. This is the plan of God. We are called to give our world the truth. And whether they believe it or not, well, that's between them and God. Our responsibility is not to make them believe we can't. It is to give them the message in a way that is believable. And then we live like we believe it. Jesus lives like he is the Son of God. We should live like we are the Son of God. And hopefully God will send us to people who are ready to believe and Who will repent of their self-righteousness and turn to God? One could only hope. But chances are pretty good. A lot of the people you try to share the gospel with, they will not want to hear it. Do your best to try to live the gospel in front of them. And as opportunity presents itself, to speak to them. And if you're like, well, they hate me. I must be doing something wrong. (laughs) Not necessarily at all. Jesus did it perfectly. They crucified him. So don't, don't feel compelled to change the message. Don't feel like you've got to somehow make it more palatable. Just truth. Just give people the truth. Don't worry. That's what God uses. It's the truth. So speak truth kindly. Jesus, Jesus is only speaking to these people with kindness, even when he tells them they're snakes and vipers. It's still in, to try to get them to wake up. You're acting just like your fathers. Don't you see it? They killed the prophets and so are you. He's trying to get them to see so that they can repent. We should try to help people to see so that they will repent. So this is a, it's a tough passage. It's hard to read it and to see just how hard these people are and just how blind to the truth they are. But in the midst of it, see the heart of Jesus We should look at our world. Oh, America, America. We should love our nation and love our people. or Whatever country we're from. This world itself. God is trying to speak to them and to give them the truth. And so should we. We are as ambassadors. Preach the gospel. Whether they listen to you, whether they don't listen to you, whether they want to hear it, whether they don't want to hear it. Remain compassionate, remain kind, speak truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example you give to us. Of your heart of compassion for your people who reject you. You came unto your own and they didn't receive you. But the message goes forth and reaches others, and to as many as do receive you, you are the very Son of God who died in our place. And thank you for that. So may we be good stewards of the message. May we carry it forth, even though it's scary, even though it's hard in a world that seems so hostile and often does not want to hear it. People who perhaps seem to be our friends were Barely certain if we shared it, they might not be our friends anymore. Out of a love for them, may we seek to speak truth. Give us your heart as we seek to evangelize the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.